what do you see in the kings that you haven't seen in markets outside the kings? And then you need a very vibrant telecom sector, you know, and then you need an enabling ecosystem of the various actors. So generally you want government, research and academia, so academic institutions that produce the talent, right, the talent pool. That From the Innovation Village, this is episode 42 of my Village podcast, produced through the Next Wave program under the Young Africa Works strategy in partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. And I'm your host, Pauline Achanowin. To quote C.K. Jaffeth, the team lead of the Innovation Village, capital is the biggest missing piece any entrepreneur faces. And he would know because he runs the Innovation Village, a startup engine that centers partnerships and collaborations in tech and innovation with entrepreneurs across the country. So today on the Village Podcast, we are talking... Yep, we are talking money. And if you're a business nerd or entrepreneur looking for money to set up your idea in motion or scale up your business, then I am sure you are conversant with words like seeding, angel investor, venture capitalist, private equity, among others. So what does this all mean? And when is the right time to say, look for an angel investor or venture capitalist? On Friday, 1st October 2021, CK hosted Eric Osiakwan. Eric is a managing partner of Chazo Capital, a Mauritius fund with three major offices spread across Africa. CK and Eric Osiakwan had an illuminating discussion around money with Ugandan entrepreneurs at the Innovation Village. Today on my Village podcast, I will share highlights from this conversation. But before we dive into what was discussed, Sike explains why he found it necessary to make space for this conversation. So Innovation Village works with entrepreneurs uh, who are solving big problems for businesses, for community, and you know, for the country. Uh, these entrepreneurs have ideas, and we use technology to make sure that they come to life at uh, scale. Um, every entrepreneur you'll speak to wants capital. You know, capital, capital, capital. They're looking for the money. And the entrepreneurs have also told us, you people have taught us enough. Now give us money to build companies. But you see, money and capital for you, the entrepreneur, is, uh, is a process. You know, you don't get it because you want it. You get it because you have created value for it. So we're excited to you know, pick up this conversation with a real investor, someone who has invested uh, across companies uh, in Africa such that he can share that experience with an entrepreneur who's looking for money, money, money to share lessons of how you can get that money uh, from not just him but from other entrepreneurs, uh, other investors across the continent. You're welcome to the village, Eric. Thank you. Eric is no stranger to making money and funding various startups. What drives him is that he feels it's a personal responsibility for him to give entrepreneurs a stepping stone because when he started out, there was someone to help and guide him. And that is how eventually the Kings of Africa concept was birthed. 
that is investing in five countries that are thriving in Africa's digital economy. Eric says his investment journey started out accidentally. So I'm an accidental investor. Uh, so when Dare to Me came to my school and talked to us, I never thought I'll be an investor someday. Uh, I am an entrepreneur. I think I still am. Um, but I was lucky to be successful in my entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, I built a bunch of ISPs, including here. I was involved in a company called one to net uh, If any of you could cast your mind back a little bit. Yesterday I was hanging out with my former partner, Badrin Tege who moved into HR and I moved into venture capital. You know, when we, uh, and I have another good friend, Charles Musisi, who was the guy who started Dr. Eugene Domain, uh, the CCTLD, so Charles an old friend. He was going to be here, but something came up, so he, he couldn't make it. Um, and a few other people. Um, and then I kind of transitioned into building subsea cables. When we built the ISPs, we created a very strong retail internet industry across Africa. And we started the African ISP Association, which was a trade association of all the ISPs. We built internet exchange points. Actually, the, the Ugandan communication tower in downtown, the basement is where the internet exchange point is. We put it there. Um, I was told it's still there after many years. Um, but what we, I realized was that we had created a very competitive downstream ISP industry. But all of us went to one pipe which was sort of the upstream fiber connection. Actually, at that time, Uganda was one of the countries that had no subsea cable because you are landlocked. Kenya was a coastal country, but had none. There was one called Satri that went on the southwestern seaboard from Portugal to Senegal to Ghana, Nigeria, all the way to South Africa, then went to Mauritius, and went to India, and skipped the whole eastern seaboard. And those of you know sort of a bit of the ISP industry, most of the time, these countries that are not having the subsea cable, you connected to satellite. And it was very expensive and slow. So I decided that I was going to try and solve that problem. Um, luckily for me, I got a fellowship to Stanford, and I focused on studying that. So I came back, and the Kenyan government invited me. So 07, 08, when the, Kenya was going through the election violence, we were busy connecting it to the rest of the world. That's when we architected a plan and built the first um, open access subsea cable called TEAMS, the East African Marine Systems. We then extended to Kampala and then to Rwanda, to a lot of the landlocked countries. Uh, um, so that was sort of the second part of my first life, you know, building connectivity across Africa. And whilst I was doing that, I noticed another phenomenon, which was that the subsea cables that we built connected to the mobile phone networks that were also being built around the same time. So I wasn't in the mobile phone you know, game. I observed it, but I was building most of the subsea cable. But these subsea cables connected to these mobile networks and created what I call a mobile web continent. In the sense that in Africa, most people see the internet for the first time on their phone. And their phone is connected to subsea cables that connects them to the rest of the world. And I observed that that was significantly different from how it happened in the West. But it wasn't remarkably different from how it happened in Asia, and most importantly, Southeast Asia. And so in China, everybody's on the phone, and everything goes through the phone. And so I realized that that same thing was happening in Africa. And a new generation of entrepreneurs were building the applications that sit on top of that network layer. So you know, I started by advising a few of these startups. And then my first startup that I was advising, one of the founders uh, gave me 7% equity in the company. I helped them with a lot of advice. 
you know, put a little bit of money here and there, and the company became very successful. Um, and that's how I forayed into investing. When I, was, when I was an entrepreneur, um, Esther Dyson, who is a famous angel investor in the U.S., you know, invested in me and we did some stuff and we stayed as friends. So one day I was chatting to her and he said, Eric, what you're doing is angel investing. And actually, you probably got it right the first time. Your first startup actually is successful. Most people fail 10 times before they get it right. So maybe you are good at doing this, so maybe you should do it. Um, and then other people like Andila and Kavara encouraged me. So in 2012, I transitioned to become sort of uh, investing back in startups. And so that's the background. That's how I got into this. The transition from building internet connectivity across Africa to his first dive into funding a startup, unbeknownst to him at that time, that this was angel investing, eventually led to a partnership of like-minded individuals. Eric is currently the managing partner of Chazo Capital, a venture and growth capital firm that is investing in financing growth and development of the high-tech sector through the provision of capital, capacity, and community in high-tech startups and scale-ups in Kenya, Ivory Coast, in Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. These countries make up the kings of Africa's digital economy. Their work has spread beyond the five countries, and Chazo Capital is working to build a vibrant ecosystem across Africa. He runs the farm with Ian Zida, operating partner who sits in Accra and overlooks West Africa, Sewu Steve Tawia, an investment professional in Nairobi who overlooks East Africa, Musi Sakosana, finance partner who sits in South Africa and overlooks Southern Africa, and then John Gosea, an investment partner who sits in Atlanta and looks after the farms as investor relations. What do you see in the kings that you haven't seen in markets outside the kings? Good question. So, like I said, it was, it's, I think that what I see, I saw in the kings, I now see in a lot of, some of the non-kings countries, right? In the book, have to do in that, they have people who have the enabling environment, it's still possible to do innovation, but it's harder, right? Uh, if you look at the technopoles around the world, if you take Silicon Valley and you take, you know, India, you take Route uh, 104 and all these places, there's always an enabling environment that creates the impetus for all this to happen. The third thing is that you need a robust technical, uh, te technical infrastructure around connectivity, subsea cables, sort of, you know, you need that blood, you know, data, you know, the new sort of oil that runs that whole ecosystem. And then you need a very vibrant telecom sector, you know, and then you need an enabling ecosystem of the various actors. So generally you want government, research and academia, so academic institutions that produce the talent, right, the talent pool that runs through this. And then you need, you know, research institutions that helps to create that impetus to solve problems, right? And then you have a driving private sector that normally leads the way, you know, and I have confidence to say you can see that in Kampala now, you can see it in Egypt, you can see it in Cairo, you can see it in Marrakesh, you can see it in Casablanca, uh, you can see it in Dakar, you know. So um, it's been a long time coming and I'm particularly excited that you can see this across Africa. And which is what encourages us to do what we're doing, which is why we're expanding our horizons to now start looking at investing beyond the kings. Yeah. All right. 
So, so just to you know, just dig in a little bit there. Um, what does an entrepreneur um, who is in a market where those you know fundamental uh, pillars um, are not? What should they be thinking uh, of? The hard part answer to that question is that it means you are you know going up on a against a rock and a hard place. You are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? But it it's, doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means it's harder. Right? But I think that eventually you're going to see that this activity is going to simmer down um, because the reality is that when you invest and when you build companies, there are two activities that run in parallel but they interface at some point. So I say that investing is an, is an act whilst building a company is a science. Right? And, and they run in parallel, but they also sort of are different tracks in the same parallel. In other words, the way you, you raise money is not the same way you build a company. And so when you're an entrepreneur, it's almost like you have to, do, you have to be a scientist and an artist at the same time. And this is where sort of a lot of entrepreneurs sort of kind of miss it. Right? And I think that the art of investing is also a different exercise that I am continuously learning. You know, I told you I'm an entrepreneur, so I was a scientist, and I'm learning the act of investing. I don't think I know it. I don't think I'm anywhere close to um, where I want to be. Um, but the important thing is that I'm committed to that process of understanding why there are more entrepreneurs that are looking for capital than more of us that should be providing capital. And it's because if you look at it, you, the entrepreneurs, have the leverage, right? So why is this provision of capital not adequate? Then I started studying other technopoles. So you take Silicon Valley, for example. And I use Silicon Valley because I lived there still, and I understand it a little bit. So the way Silicon Valley was built was after the Second World War, the Stanford family and a few rich people said, we wanted to build this you know, uh, place where people will solve problems. So they gave money to uh, Tim Draper's great-grandfather who came from the Second World War. And you know what he did? The, the criteria then for looking for companies was they go through the phone directly and they look for companies with semiconductor in their name. So if you have a semiconductor in your name, they call you up. Say, hey, CK, your company is uh, Innovation Semiconductor. Do you need money? We have money for you. So that's how Silicon Valley was built, where there was money sitting down and they were looking for entrepreneurs, right? And technically, that's how the equation is supposed to be. But here is the opposite, right? Um, all of this stock and all this big, we invest in probably two or three companies the entire year. So something is wrong with the equation, right? Uh -huh. And so, and, and what is wrong with the equation is that a lot of the world that is, and so, the people that control the wealth made the wealth in a certain way, and so you look at the wealth through that lens. So this ecosystem needs to generate entrepreneurs that will become successful, and then they will reinvest, right? So that's how the equation is going to work, eventually. You're listening to my Village podcast, and we'll be taking a short break, but when we come back... So if you don't have a relationship with me, how do you ask me for money? 
Welcome to my village, a world where all the support you need to build your business is just a click away. Our platform connects entrepreneurs, investors, businesses, and talent. To join, sign up via www.myvillage.africa and be part of Africa's next biggest thing. Welcome back. You're listening to my Village Podcast. Today, I'm sharing highlights from a conversation CK Jaffeth, the team lead of the Innovation Village, had with Eric Osiakwan, managing partner of Chazo Capital. Before the break, Eric was answering CK's questions on how an entrepreneur from a country outside the five kings of Africa can have access to funding opportunities. How does an entrepreneur, regardless of where they are, raise money? Raising money is an art and not the same as the science of building a business. And it's an art because you have to build relationships. It's an art of relation building. Think about it for a minute. If you are in trouble and you need money, who is the most likely person you will ask? Anybody, just give a random answer. If, if you need money, you got, let's say somebody died, let me not use that, maybe you're in trouble, you, you lost money or something, and you, you just need money, who is the most likely person you will ask? Friends. Exactly, family, friends, right? Why? Right? It's a relationship there. So, and you feel comfortable asking your family or your friend that you went to school with, right? Because what? You have a relationship with them. So, so if you don't have a relationship with me, how do you ask me for money? So you see that? So raising money is an art. So you have to start a different track. So you're on this track where you're trying to build a company. But because you need to raise money from Eric sometime down the line, you need to start a second track, a power track of getting to figure out how do I get to know Eric. So that the day I need money, I will feel comfortable, and Eric will be comfortable enough that if I ask him money, he will consider giving me. So you see it? So this is a, this is a very strong fundamental that I learned through my career, right? And a lot of people don't have this fundamental. And if you don't understand it that way, you realize that raising money becomes difficult. Because you can never walk to somebody you don't know and then ask them for money. And because you have a great idea, they'll write you a check. I mean, it happened once in a million times. It does happen, but it's one in a million times, right? So, so, so that's a very important foundation that you have to understand. The third important foundation you understand is that the core of entrepreneurship is you solve a problem and then you get customers who buy the solution and pay you for it. Now, the core of the capital that you need to get for your business to work should come from your customers. But when you start, because you need, you don't have customers, you only have an idea, you need somebody who gives you that initial capital to get started, right? And that's why you go to investors. So at an early stage, the first group of investors you go to, we call them angels, angel investors or angels, right? The reason they call them angels is they're almost angelic. They're more like beings from heaven, right? Because they are people that somehow are able to see into the future that you see without knowing that future. Without a... So, and then the third in that category is they call them fools. So family, friends, and fools. The fools is the once in a lifetime guy that you may speak to that you don't have a relationship with. 
I mean, I've invested in people that, you know, I do it once in a while. I never knew I didn't have a relation with. But somehow I sat with someone instinctively. I liked the person. I thought this person could be a great, you know, connector. He could do something extraordinary. And then you take a risk. And that's why I'm classified as a fool. Because it's almost like a fool's errand. And, and, I've, and a lot of them, that hasn't worked. You know, the most that hasn't worked in my, is people that I never had a relationship with. And it's not that the people were bad. You know, it's just that, you know, um, we didn't have a relationship. So the dynamics around, you see the dynamics around why you get that money? They have nothing to do with the idea. You get it? So there are different constructs around how you think about raising money. So I'm just trying to get your mind to think differently around the construct of how you raise money, which is significantly a different part, which is the artistic part, right? That's how artist, artistic, artistry works, right? It's not a science function. It's a different function, mm. you know? So the first group of people, they give you the money that you used to start. So then you take that money, then you sit down, then that idea, you construct it into this bottle. Then you have a product. Now, when you have a product, now you need to go out and sell it. But you can't be the one doing the product and selling at the same time. So you need to hire people. You need to have uh, some office. You have to have business card. So then you go to the next investor, which is venture capitalist. Now, the venture capitalist will say that, I want to see that you use the money that your uncle gave you to do something. So once you're able to show me that, you know, I had this idea to build this bottle. My uncle gave me 5000 Now look, I have a prototype of it. In the tech world, we call it minimum viable product. So something that someone can use and pay you for it. So the venture capitalist, you see the name venture capitalist. Remember the first one, angel investor. You see, the name almost connotes how they think and what they do, the function. So when you are at an early stage, don't go and talk to a venture capitalist. Is it a point? So do your research. Because if you're at an early stage, you don't have a product, and you're talking to a venture capitalist, wrong alignment. So the venture capitalist is trying to capitalize the venture, but you must have a venture. So when you, so you see, all of them also, you know, their name is in their name. You know, we are Chanzo Capital. You, you write a venture capital firm. When somebody's an angel investor, they will write it there, angel investor. You know, so it's in their name. So when you do your research, so the first thing that you need to figure out who is where in what categorization, and then approach them at what stage you are. Then once you've gotten the money to start selling, people are buying the product, the company is growing, you've got 10,000 customers. Then it's okay, we've conquered Kampala. Now we want to grow to uh, Intinda, or we want to go to Munyonyo, or I want to expand it to Nairobi. Then you go to growth capitalist, right? You need growth capital. Yeah, people provide growth capital. Most of them are venture capitalists. The venture capital should provide you, some provide you growth capital, right? Then once you're now in Kampala, you're in Nairobi, you are in Johannesburg, you are in uh, Dar es Salaam, you become a big company. You're making revenues of $100 million. Then there's a, a third group called private equity. I'm sure you've heard of them, PE. They will say, okay. CK, this is a company, you're making 100 million every year, 100 million dollars. Okay, we want to turn this to 100 billion. And then they come, and it, they normally buy a controlling position because they want to take that formula that you have and turn it into a billion dollar company. So they must have control, right? So they are the private equity firms. Then they will then turn it to a billion dollar company, and then guess what they do? Then they take it to the capital markets, which is the Uganda Stock Exchange, or the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange, or the London Stock Exchange. 
So you see the stages, angel investors, venture capitalists, slash growth capital, private equity, then stock market. So when you start a company, you can't go to the stock market, there is a lot of stock here and say, I want to raise money. <laughs> Wrong place to start from. Mm. Mm. Andela, a marketplace for remote technical talent, recently raised $200 million, led by SoftBank Group, a Japanese tech investor, and is now valued at $1.5 billion. Andela has attained unicorn status and joins ranks with Opay and Flutterwaves. CK asked Eric to explain what's happening both from the entrepreneur and capital or funding perspective. What can an entrepreneur learn from the leading trends on the African continent now? So I'll, I'll tease out three, three trends for you. I think the first one we kind of... Um, then the second trend is the sectors, right? The sector that is emerging as leading is fintech. It's interesting because this, started in, in, this also happened in 0708 in Kenya. And this was a very interesting um, anecdote. So Safaricom had just started M-Pesa. It wasn't very popular. In those of us in the city, you have to support the family in the village. So I'm sure all of you, you send money. You put it on the bus. You know, and then people were being attacked on the bus. So you know, it's like, now you can use M-Pesa to send. But people weren't getting it. Then the election violence hit in Kenya, and banks shut down, transport services shut down, people couldn't move. So the lesson in that is that, you know, when you are building, I spoke to a few entrepreneurs, there's one in the room who said, you're trying to do it, COVID hit us hard, and then we went down, I said, don't give up. Your time will come. The worst is when the wave comes and your product's not ready. So Safari comes, when it comes to mobile money transmissions globally, if you look, read the five uh, strategies report by Boston, to, um, the third trend is that these things happen in 10-year cycles. Downstairs, where they show some of the most successful companies. A minimum of 10 years. But unfortunately, when a company becomes successful, they pay the impression that they started yesterday and became successful today. So everybody's like, hey, but me too, I started yesterday. How come I'm not successful today? <laughs> <laughs> but... That is just the gimmick. That is the hype, the PR. If you are an entrepreneur, a minimum of 10 years is what you need. So I'm sorry to tell you, if you can't afford 10 years, please, just get a job. It's okay. It will take 10 years for your cycle to come around. But if you can stick around for 10 years, it will come around. Why? Because when you put yourself to an idea and you push it enough, it begins to get a life of its own. You know, so when you are an entrepreneur, you are a co-creator in a way of speaking, right? And you have to keep co-creating until the wave comes. You know, the best surfers in the world, they don't create a wave. But you know, they get succeed. But you have to create your skateboard and make sure that you are ready because that time will come. You know, David Ross did a recent TED talk. He said, the most successful companies that we see in the gig economy, you know, the Facebook, the Uber, they don't new ideas. You know what they got right? The timing. They saw the wave this time around, and they jumped on it. So how do you know the wave is here? Good question. And that's, that's the thing that only the entrepreneur will know. Mm. And which is why, and this is probably the most profound thing I'll tell you. This is why you, the entrepreneur, have the leverage, not the investor. Let me show you how you lose the leverage to the investor and why you think that I'm the most important person. I'm not. You are the most important person in the room. Because you are the only one that can spot the wave. You know why? Because you're the one on the skateboard. You are the one who's been preparing the whole night, sleepless night, 
working and you can always know when it's time to go. You will know. It, it, it's that nobody will tell you. You will know. When you are ready and opportunity comes, you will know. You will not know if you are not ready. And that's the only basis on which you will not know. But if you are prepared enough and you have done all the homework, you will know it's instinctive. You know this is my moment and you jump on it. Nobody can teach you that. No teacher, no book will tell you that. No, it's, it's an experience. And this is the differentiator between you and investor. Me, the investor, I want to, I, I am following you. So the investor and the product and generating revenue in Silicon Valley, and this is the second part of why the Silicon Valley's advantage that I told you about is also its disadvantage, right? And this is what I learned there. Because there's so much money, the Silicon Valley investors tell you, don't worry about unit economics. Don't worry about getting customers or getting the business profitable. We will fund you, we will fund the growth. But you know what they're doing? They're taking over your company. Because, because you're not profitable, I give you a valuation, I take 20%. You know, I give you another 20 um, million, I take 30%. By the time I give you a third money, I'm the majority shareholder. You're working for me. You say you're an entrepreneur, but you're not. A lot of the big companies that you hear, the big valuations that you hear, they are not majority owned by the entrepreneurs. They are majority owned by the investors. Why? Because the investors somehow, and that's a model that works. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm saying that it's a model. But you got to understand that model. That model says that fund growth at all costs and don't worry about unit economics because there's a lot of capital that will help you fund that growth. But if you're in Africa where there's no pot of money, you know me, I don't have a pot of money. <laughs> they didn't give me money to come and call you. you know? <laughs> so for me, when I invest in a company, I want to ensure that the company is able to use that money to get to its next level. And in my view, then you are building a really sustainable company because you are able to fund yourself and grow the business. And that's how businesses will be around for a long time. Understanding that an opportunity or wave is here and knowing when or how to ride it is for sure an instinct every entrepreneur has to hone. When all is said and done, preparation and luck work hand in hand to make a successful entrepreneur. You're now going to listen to the question and answer sessions Eric Osekwan had with young entrepreneurs present at the Innovation Village. A number of people listening online also submitted questions. They were good and the answers eye-opening. Today's podcast is longer than usual. Apologies for eating into your data, but I believe it is a masterclass for entrepreneurs. So stretch your legs, make yourself that cup of tea, and if you're stuck in traffic, stick with me. The money conversation continues. Uh, WAPI is a digital talent marketplace, and we are trying to take advantage of the gig economy by fighting the unemployment problem we're facing. How do you know that you actually need capital? And second would be, how do you avoid getting into bed with a wrong investor? Two good questions, uh, colleagues. Thanks a lot. So, so the first one is almost like you can look at it from the stages that I described, right, of a business. And so when you're at an early stage, the question you ask yourself is, what, what, how much capital do I need to take that idea in my head, right, and create a product? So you may say, for example, I need to hire uh, a CTO, somebody who can write the code. Uh, I need to pay him, you know. Uh, I need the internet, constant. Uh, maybe I'm working from home, so I have to pay my house rent. 
you know. So you calculate those things. And then you say, okay, it will take me six months to one year to be able to get a minimum viable product. Then you amortize. So then you know that uh, it will come to 120 million Ugandan shillings or something like that, right? Then that gives you the number. So that's, that's practical. Then you say, okay, now how do I get the money? You hustle your uncle, you hustle your friends from school, or you say, ah, actually I have 120 million in my savings that I, you know, I've been saving, I was working before, or when I was in school, my dad was giving me money, or you were doing some side hustle. So you have one, so it's okay, and I'm going to bootstrap. So I have my own money, so I'll do that myself. Then, you know, when you go to the next stage, you know, I, I tell entrepreneurs, you know, the same way if you don't raise money, your company could fail, you can also raise money from the wrong investors and your company will fail, right? So the same way we investors, you know, due diligence, ask a lot of questions. You should also ask, you know, first of all, you should do research on an investor. For example, one of the simplest ways to do research on an investor is talk to the entrepreneurs invested in. Very simple way. It's an entrepreneur like you, so he will talk to you. And so you need to, once you've made those fundamentals that I talked about, you have a sense of what kind of investor you need, right? I've told you a bit about what we look for, right? So you can now begin to say, okay, is Eric the right investor for me? And if Eric is not the right investor for you, you don't want to start with Eric. Maybe your thinking is, no, I want an investor who will just give me 100 million every day. I won't get cost me. I don't want to talk about unit economics. Yeah, I don't want unit. It's fine. It's your path. You know, but you want to be on that path. So you find investors who believe, who don't talk about unit economics, they all they find is growth. And they're investors like that, right? Um, or you say, me, I want to do unit economics. I just want to be able to give up a little bit of my company, raising enough money, and then control a company and build revenue. And Eric is the kind of guy I want to talk to, right? Because part of it is, is also that the way we see investing, that we, we see it on the lens of, you know, when you start, you create a certain pie, right? Our thinking as investors, and this is uh, now the value system that we, Towns of Capital, subscribe to. We subscribe to the school of thought that we want to come into the boats and make the boats bigger, as opposed to trying to own a bigger portion of the small pie that you have. So, so it's two different ways of looking at things. The people invest and they say they want to get a bigger portion of what is there already. We want to own a small portion but make it bigger, right? So you also don't understand the philosophy of how investors look at value creation. And, and that also, if you don't have those elements in place, and this is where alignment is important. So if you don't have that alignment, so the guy gives you the money, and he is trying to tell you, no, go this way, and you go, no, I want to go this way. You eventually have a problem. Because even though you have collected money and is invested in the company, your board meetings will always be, he's going this way and you are going that way. So it's important also that you are so aligned with the investor, not only in the vision of what you're trying to build, but in how you execute. And there's a third element of that, which is the most tenuous of that, which is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, whatever you told the investor or whatever business plan you wrote, it eventually doesn't turn out exactly the same way. Sige will tell you, when he started building uh, the innovation village, you had a vision. You had, but it's not as, you didn't think about it this way. I, I, I bet there's no basis of you can tell you that this was his, I knew that there would be a room like this. No! And would speak to Eric on this day. You never knew. Yeah. But you had a vision that I want to build something, right? And you sold that vision to your friends, people that are working and believe in you. So, but, so how does it work? So you as an investor have 
if you don't respond to the market, you are dead. So the market eventually determines who will succeed or who will fail. And the companies that have succeeded are the people that listen to the market and act on what the market is saying. So the market always speaks. The market has a position. You can take the market's position or follow your position. If you don't listen to the market, it will punish you. The market will always punish you. So the entrepreneurs that succeed are those who listen to the market and they follow the rules of the market. That's the customer. The customer will be telling you, I want it this way. He says, no, 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 customer, no, me, I will do it this way. Okay, you do it this way. Okay, do it. They won't buy your product. They won't use it. They won't recommend it. They'll die. But if you listen to the customer, the product will keep succeeding. They'll keep buying. They'll recommend it to other people, and you grow. Uh -huh. Hello, everyone. My name is Paul Katumba, and I'm a CEO of a company called Minute 5. And at Minute 5, we do deliver fresh groceries to consumers and to businesses. What would an entrepreneur do if they were too big for angel investors, but then too small for VCs? What would an entrepreneur do uh, <laughs> if they're trying to raise capital? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's a dilemma. It's a, I'll, give you an, I'll answer your question with an, a company we just invested in. The entrepreneur decided that they were going to go to the market and they managed to convince their first customer with an idea. They hadn't built any tech. And then work with that, that customer to validate the idea and broke even in six months. And now, they have a business that's broken even, but there's no technology. And there's supposed to be a tech company. And now they're building the tech to catch up. Right. And that is the right way to go. But the challenge there is that now they have to build the tech quickly enough. So we are funding them now to build the tech. Right? And I think that, and the reason we invested in this company was that they have actually spin this the other way, which is, in my view, a very strong case in how you are able to go to a customer, take a problem they have, figure out a way to solve that problem and create the customer flows and the processes. So when you build a product now, the product is exact. Because there is no if, there's no, you know, you know exactly what the customer wants because you've delivered the product. You know that when they order this, it goes there, and it goes there, and then it goes there, and then it goes there. So you can build the product exactly. So um, to answer your question, I gave this some because it sort of creates a challenge, but it's a good problem to have. And the reason why it's a good problem is that you already have a customer who's paying you a broken even. So you, you could actually fund the development without Eric. But you know, I will be more interested in investing in you. Why? Because you're already broken even. So this company, we, it, was a long, it was a short conversation to get going. And, and the reason it's a short conversation is that you've actually solved the most difficult part of the equation, which is getting to break even and getting your product to a level that the customers that are paying enough for it so that you don't necessarily need the capital for me to solve that problem, but to start build the tech around it. So it makes it easy in some way. Now, the other side of your question is that, let's assume, so you've raised the first money, but you've built the product, you haven't gotten the traction, and now you won't be able to get to that traction stage 
but you don't have investors who will give you the capital for that, right? Then, again, the, the way you solve that equation is then focus on your customers. Because your customers, if you build a product right, they will recommend it to another customer. They will recommend it to another customer. You know, customer rec recommendation is the easiest way to acquire customers. It costs you nothing. So focus on satisfying the customers you have and delighting those customers such that they will then be your marketing team. You can actually use your first customers to build your marketing team. You don't need to go and hire marketing people because the product works so well, they like it. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Patience Sankunda. I'm a computer scientist and CEO of African Fit. My question is how many of the, I don't want to say startups, but um, the businesses you're funding have um, women leading those teams? And how would you rate their performance compared to the ones that are led by the gentlemen? Yeah. A good, very good question. Um, so in our first portfolio, um, our gender ratio was very bad. We're probably at about 15% female founders or co-founders. In our second fund, we want to improve that. So it's something that we haven't done well at. The VC industry globally is terrible at that. Um, and I think that generally, generally as a race, we need to improve what we call gender forward, right? Um, it's interesting because in Africa, a lot of the entrepreneurs are actually women. Majority of entrepreneurs in Africa are women, but very few of them are funded. Right. And part of it is that, also part of the equation is that there's not a lot of women funders, right? Women investors, right? So if you're a, man, if you're a male investor, you're, you're predominantly sort of like, you know, your automatically is you know, invest in males, and we've done a lot of that, and we want to change that. Even in our team, my partnership, there's no female partner, right? So we need to change that. We need to improve that internally. We need to, we've started with our board. We cannot have a gender parity in our board. We have 50-50 gender parity in our board. We want to do that in a partnership. So the next set of partners we want to bring on, we want to bring on female partners, and we're, we're working on that. We are not there yet, but technically, when you look at the data, now to sort of the second part of your question, there's empirical evidence that support the fact that companies that have female founders do better than those that don't. I think there's enough data, at least in the global north. We need to build a data set for the global south, but I don't think it's going to be significantly different, you know. And so it begs the question then that if you want to have better performing companies, then you need to fuse gender. So one of the things that we want to do is it's not just backing female founders but we also want to infuse gender, gender into the leadership of the company that we're investing. So even if there's no female founder, how can we bring more female leadership into the company? And you can do that as an investor. So the next guys you're hiring. So I'll give you an example. We invested in a company in Kenya called Finaxis. Um, the founder was a male founder, a sole male founder, Barkley uh, Okari. And when we invested, it was just him, and the whole team was predominantly male. So I started working with him. Um, four years later, today, um, Barkley is the only male um, in, the in the senior management. Um, the CTO is female. The head of the deputy CEO and head of partnership is female. Um, the CFO is female. And the head of growth is female. And that company has exceeded all its numbers 
since we had predominantly female leadership. So we have a Connecticut experiment within our, one of our portfolio companies, and we've seen very clearly um, how much you know, infusing female leadership to the company um, makes a huge difference on the performance. So in other words, this is not just about gender. It's not just like you know, patronizing women, right? I really think that it's about outcomes. If you do it intentionally and do it well, your company will do better. We end today's podcast with an observation from Mugabe, an entrepreneur passionate about education. Most Ugandans are struggling financially, so it's actually difficult to source for funding from friends and family. So how do you get the attention of a venture capitalist like Eric Osiakwan to consider seeding? So now I'm going to take the lead off a little bit. So one of the things I'm working with uh, CK on is, you know, and what CK is and the team is been able to achieve. Actually, let me just take a pause to really congratulate CK because what he's built is incredible. You know, to start this from nothing, have a vision. This is five years ago. You know, we started talking, he had a vision, right? And I said, you know, it's going to be hard, you know, but you got to believe in yourself and wake up every day and build. The next stage of what we've seen here is he started something also called the Kampala Angel Investor Network King, right? And the plan is to try and solve this problem um, of building an angel network locally that will start supporting entrepreneurs. We're working on it. We want to also do a fund. Um, we're chatting about it. Um, because now you build a strong enough ecosystem um, with great founders like yourself. So now we have to now bring the investors in. As I said, remember the story from in Silicon Valley, there was a pot of money for people to call people and say, you need money. We, we don't have a pot of money. You, use, you acknowledge. Yeah. So the way we are going to do it is going to be different. You know, so as I said, you are between a rock and a hard place, but you are the pioneers. You know, I'm looking forward to 10 years from now, your company being very successful so that you can invest in the next guy. You know, unfortunately, nobody started an educational company like you in Uganda, remember? And so nobody succeeded before you so they can fund you. So you are the pioneers. So the second point, the second stop I want to make here is to recognize you guys in the room and all of you in the Innovation Village and in Uganda. You're all pioneers. I mean, you're going up against a rock and a hard place. And you're figuring out something that is hard. You've not built a company before, but every day you're waking up and working through the muzzle. You know, you're, you're building... Tech, uh, tech talent for startups. It's hard. You can't find the talent. When you find people, you have to train them. Then you have to sell them to startups who don't have the money to pay you. You are pioneering. You're building a new class of entrepreneurs. You're building a new class of businesses that will change this country, that will transform Uganda and take it to the digital economy. Right? So I want to congratulate you all. The, the nightmares you go through, the challenges that you are facing, you are pioneers. Some people build that to make Silicon Valley. Some people build that to make the United States what it is. You are building Uganda to be the next frontier country. So it's hard. It's not easy. You're going between a rock and a hard place. But if you keep at it, you will succeed. Ten years from now, you'll be the angel investors funding the next things. So if you're not finding angel investors, don't give up. Keep trying. Yeah. Keep talking to Jeff CK. Keep talking to me. Keep finding a way. Where there's a will, there's always a way. And we will do our best to start providing the framework for more capital to come to the ecosystem. 
But the reality is that we were not given a sack of money. To <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, that content is a very important content. But we will get there. Uh, thank you very much for making the Innovation Village part of your journey. It's not easy. Uh, and I, I, I tell people that I'm quite aware of the fact that we haven't given the entrepreneurs everything they need. It's, it's a journey to build the ecosystem. The last piece we're solving for is the capital piece, and that's why we're having these conversations. Thank you, Eric and CK. And from the Innovation Village, this is my village podcast produced through the Next Wave program under the Young Africa Works strategy in partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. And I'm your host, Pauline Achanowin. talking to Jeff CK, keep talking to me, keep finding a way. Where there's a will, there's always a way. And we will do our best to start providing the framework for more capital to come to the ecosystem. But the reality is that we were not given a sack of money. To <laughs> mm. You know, that content is a very important content, but we will get there. Uh, thank you very much for making the Innovation Village part of your journey. It's not easy. Thank you, Eric and CK. And from the Innovation Village, this is my village podcast produced through the Next Wave program under the Young Africa Works strategy in partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. And I'm your host, Pauline Achanowin. <laughs>